0: 8:45. Let's start. Uh, welcome. This is the late night session. My name is Monty Cox. I wrote that book uh, you see there, called "Significant Under Others: Understanding Our Non-Christian Neighbors." It came out in 2017, but it's the culmination of uh, a course I teach at Harding. Uh, a couple of you have taken, called "Living World Religions." I've been teaching that course since, well, for 25 years now and every semester take my students on a field trip so they can experience these um, places of worship, meet adherents face-to-face, hopefully leave that class feeling more equipped for conversations that otherwise they would be intimidated, too intimidated to have. So I'm leaving it there on the screen long enough for you to make a note of it. If you buy one on Amazon, I get all of 42 cents or something like that. <clears throat> but, uh, It's still available. There's even a DVD series that goes along with it for your church or your small group in 13 episodes that go with the 13 chapters of the book. Actually, the preface is more chapter length, so there are 12 chapters, and what I'm about to tell you comes from chapter 12, the concluding chapter. And I began in a synagogue. It's been a long time ago now. I was in a synagogue in Dallas on one of those field trips listening to Rabbi Gershon, the rabbi at the time, talk about a conversation that he was not part of with the Dalai Lama pictured there. He he was talking about that conversation that had happened actually decades before, I found out later, because it was only months after the Virginia Tech massacre. And that was the topic of his message on that Shabbat service that Saturday. He was asking the question, uh, how do we who are Jewish people recover? from such horrible incidents. And it made him think of this conversation, he said, that the Dalai Lama, who was the leader of Tibetan Buddhism, had with a bunch of Orthodox rabbis in New York City. Uh, and I found out later, it was decades before Rabbi Gershon was talking about it. But he said, the D- Dalai Lama met with those Orthodox rabbis to ask the question, what is the key to your resilience as people? Over and over again through history, you get knocked down, and yet somehow you get back up? How do you do that? The Dalai Lama had an interest in that question because as the leader of Tibetan Buddhism, which is a community in exile, he thought maybe there was something to learn from these Jewish friends. Then Rabbi Gershon said, I wasn't in that meeting. (laughs) So I don't really know how the Jewish rabbis answered the question, had I I been there, then I felt sort of cheated. Rabbi Gershon said, had I been there, I would have told him the key to our resilience is in two words, the words memory and hope. We Jews remember. We remember on purpose. We remember the good along with the bad. We remember our tragedies as well as our victories. We celebrate the death of a loved one, by sitting Shiva. Shiva meaning seven in Hebrew. We sit for seven days to reminisce about this loved one, whether we get along with each other as family members or not. Tradition forces us to do that. Just a few weeks ago, we passed Yom HaShoah, the the Jewish day to remember the Holocaust. It's not the same as International Remembrance Day. The Jews have their own special day to remember. We remember, they say. We remember on purpose, and the memory helps us go forward. It's memory. And then the second thing he says that's key to our resilience is hope. We're a people of hope. We just had Passover a couple of weeks ago. The end of every Passover all over the world ends with the same words. Next year in Jerusalem. Because The hope is that this will be the year, a hope shared by fewer and fewer Jewish people, I might add, Usually Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox are some very conservative ones. But the hope is that this may be the year that the Messiah will come, rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and then next year he will host Passover. So you say at the end of every Passover, next year in Jerusalem, memory and hope. I knew when I heard it, I was hearing something profound that I would want to repeat. It was on the Sabbath in a synagogue where you're not permitted to write Because that's considered work. But I'm telling you about it because I still remember it. Memory and hope. It's not the first time, not the only time, that I've heard something profound in a place of worship that was something other than a Christian place of worship. Which shouldn't surprise us. Because truth comes from the same source, no matter who repeats it, that source with a capital S. right? Truth comes from the same source, no matter Who repeats it? Theologians call it what we know of God through general revelation. We heard it this morning from Fallon, how creation itself speaks of the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies show his handiwork. Paul would say, in the imprint of the human heart, even among the Gentiles, it's as if there's a law written on their hearts. Another manifestation of the creator making his mark on his creatures. That's part of general revelation. Then there's the special revelation, which is scripture and particularly the embodiment of what God wants to say to the world in the person of Jesus, which I'll talk about a bit later. That's called general revelation, and and then there's special revelation. Another word for general revelation is common grace. Common grace. What may be known of God, even if you've never heard the gospel, even if you've never picked up a Bible. And I think I've seen evidence of common grace in lots of places of worship that we're not Christian. When I go to the mosque, and I see there symbols of submission, you probably know that Islam, the word, means submission. And it's more than a word for my Muslim friends. You see submission in the prayer posture. That's a very submissive posture. Prostrate before God, submitting before him. I see... That same attitude of submission in a teenage girl who lives in DFW and has decided, tells her parents, I'm going to wear a hijab to school this year. Even though I know I have friends that are going to make fun of me because they'll say, oh, you're one of them. You're not like us. And even though she knows she'll be criticized for it, she puts on that hijab. In submission, she thinks to Allah. Where I think of the 10 and 11-year-olds, who've taken the time to memorize the whole Qur'an in Arabic. North American kids who cannot converse in Arabic, but they can recite the whole thing in Arabic, which would be like your kids taking so seriously to commit to memory the New Testament in Greek. From Matthew to 1 Peter, that's about the length of the Qur'an, that they could memorize the whole thing in Greek a language in which they also cannot converse. So, yeah, I'm impressed with such symbols of submission. I'm impressed when I go to Eastern places of worship, which I often do. was in several, a, a couple of weeks ago, with my latest edition of this Living World Religions class. I'm impressed with the, the symbols of dedication. I see their dedication to a cause I don't share. And yet, dedication all the same that puts people in uncomfortable postures, OK, uncomfortable-to-me postures, in the lotus position, on the floor for hours. Right? To be able to get in the lotus position and stay there for hours, it would require the jaws of life to extract me from the lotus position at this age. But still, I'm impressed with that level of dedication I see in my Hindu and Buddhist and Sikh and Jain friends when I'm exposed to the traditional religions of the world, which I was for much of my life living in rural Africa. I was immersed in it for a decade. Or when I learn about the traditional religions, I realize the word traditional religion may not mean much to you, but in the world of comparative religion, traditional religion is what's practiced from the Aztecs to the, to the Zulus. Do You see what I did there? Uh, and the indigenous peoples of the world in between, the aboriginals of Australia to the Maori religion of New Zealand. And yes, to the Kalenjin people of Western Kenya, the place I called home. Uh, there's much there to admire about people who cling so tenaciously to the oral traditions of their forefathers with no help from a book. There's no book. that helps them pass down those rituals, those traditions from one generation to the next. They're oral traditions among the Navajo and many others. But I admire that because there is something there that's admirable. Go read Jeremiah 35. Read about the Rechabites, a story we don't tell much, unless you happen to be talking about the backdrop of traditional religion. The Rechabites that God tells Jeremiah to regale with praise because they have held tightly to the traditions of their forefather, Jonadab, haven't wavered one bit from it, even though I, the Lord, your God, have spoken to you, the people of Israel, over and over again, and you haven't listened. Go learn a lesson from the traditional religion of the Rechabites. Here I am in a culture that almost worships everything shiny and new. So yeah, there's something to admire about the traditional cultures of the world, which is not at all the same as saying, see, all these religions are just like our faith. It's not not saying that they're all good, they're all right, they're all holy to say that there's something admirable in them. It's just to acknowledge what God himself has already revealed, that when people look at the universe around them or they look at the imprint of the creator within, even if they don't acknowledge a creator, as in the case of Buddhism and many other Eastern religions, still there's this impulse to look for someone beyond themselves. The impulse is a divine impulse. comes from the way they're made. And yet there are significant differences. You know, Oprah's uh, Belief, and Aslan's Believer. Fewer people saw Believer than saw Oprah's Belief. Both of those uh, series of documentaries that talk about the religions of the world say religion is good. In a culture that's increasingly irreligious, they say, look, religion is good. Be religious. That's a good thing. Doesn't matter which religion it is, but pick one. So, Of course, I'm not saying that tonight. Uh, In fact, I would say, that my friends who are adherents of non-Christian religions would say those differences are really important. Don't gloss over them. Yes, let's find common ground. Let's do what Paul did when he talked to that group of philosophers on Mars Hill. Let's find points of contact. But let's not gloss over the points of contrast because those are plentiful. I have spent my whole adult life immersed in the religions of others. First, as a young 22-year-old missionary trying to learn everything I could about the Kalenjin people, their religion and culture, and their language in Western Kenya. And then as a student of and now a professor of comparative religion, my whole adult life, I've devoted myself to the study of the religions of others. And after all these years, I've come to appreciate, I believe, the points of contrast, what makes the gospel unique and in case you're feeling like you look at a church full of young people or old people, people who are so sated by the pluralism of our time that fuels the relativism of our time, that basically says, all religion is good, let's not talk about it. Or if you've heard of Stephen Prothrow, who teaches what I teach at Boston University, but teaches from a different perspective, Stephen Prothero, who would say, America is the most religiously tolerant nation on earth and also the most ignorant about the religions of others. Why? Because of all that tolerance, we're afraid to ask questions of these co-religionists that aren't Christian. We're afraid that we might offend, and in fact, we might offend if we ask in a way that's disrespectful and uninformed. So I say, let's be respectful and informed, and maybe we'd have a chance of striking up a conversation that might even be persuasive where the gospel is concerned. That's where I'm coming from. My cards are on the table face up. You know it already that I'm a devote Christ follower. And as a devote follower of Christ, I'm convinced that there are certain pieces of this message that are absolutely unique. I'll tell you what they are from my point of view. One is what we have embraced here as Christians is a story. It's a story from start to finish. Most sacred texts don't include these stories. You just assume, well, they have their sacred text over there, and it must be filled with stories like ours is. The truth is they don't. Most sacred texts of the world are filled with hymns, in some cases, or philosophical speculations, or rules for monks, and an occasional story here and there. But... The Christian message comes from Scripture, is a story. I mean, there are also hymns in it, as you know. You've read the Psalms. You've sung the Psalms. There are also some philosophical things. There are certainly some rules. But all of it is hung on the framework of an epic story that begins with creation, not, as Jonathan said earlier, a scientific description of creation, as moderns, we tried to make Genesis into a scientific account of creation, which it never was intended to be. Imagine giving your scientific explanation of creation to a bunch of nomads in the wilderness thousands of years ago. Wouldn't have registered it at all. But as Jonathan was alluding to tonight, imagine you're dealing with Hebrews who believe the myths around them about how the world came to be, that the world is the product of many gods who are fighting with each other, and out of that violence came the, the created world. humanity came from all that violence and all its variation with a top and a bottom and a hierarchy and the poor and the rich. That's why there's such violence. It came out of violence, and it's all bad. The message of Genesis is simple. There's only one God. Number one. Number two, he made the world on purpose. Not out of violence. Number three, he stood back from what he made and said, that's good. If you believe those three things about the cosmos, you're already set on a very different course than the course followed by all the other religions of the world, except for maybe Judaism and Islam. It's a story. It begins with how we came to be, and then the creation of the nation of Israel, not for their own sake, but so they might be a mediator nation to the whole world, the whole world that didn't know him, but they might come to know him more specifically, special revelation through God's own revelation, ultimately through his son, the word that became flesh. And then the, that agenda, that mission is kept alive through periods of exile and return, then more exile and return through the, the message of the prophets who ultimately foretell the coming of a Messiah who will be the embodiment of what God has wanted to say to the whole world, not just to Jewish people. But he will say it through a Jew, through one of them. And then the Messiah comes. The next part of the story is accounts of his coming from four different camera angles. We call them the four Gospels who believe they're telling testimony of things they actually heard and saw. Then what follows is Acts of the Apostles. What happens next? How did these people interpret what Jesus had told them to go and do? This is how they interpret it. Watch what they went and did. And then letters written to the churches that they went and planted. And then at the very end, a a tale of, mostly of things to come, some some things in Revelation that have already happened. It's an epic story from start to finish. Trust me, there is no other holy book like it. You think they're all like that, but none of them are like that. None of them are one continuous story. It's not just a story. It's a story grounded in history. Some of you know what you're looking at picture of the 4th century synagogue of Capernaum built on the site of the 1st century synagogue in Capernaum. When you're there, you have a really good idea that you're where a place, in a place where Jesus once stood, where many of your favorite miracles recorded in the Gospel of Mark happened, at least there or in that vicinity. The, the, the men who wrote those four Gospels believed they were telling history, not just interesting stories. They were testifying about what they saw and what they heard. One of them who wrote the gospel according to John. We think he's the same one who wrote this letter, First John, in which he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. We're not telling you fairy tales here. We saw him. This is what we proclaim to you, this word of life, the word with the capital W, this word of life. He appeared and we saw him. Peter, the same Peter who stood up and boldly proclaimed what he said he had seen and heard on the day of Pentecost, who went from Peter the denier to Peter the proclaimer, not too many days later. St. Peter, we think, at least 2 Peter is attributed to him, said this about the transfiguration. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were there, we saw it happen. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We didn't make this up. Paul himself would say, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. None of this stuff about, well, as long as you're religious, as long as you have a moral compass, it's better than not having a moral compass. So there are dozens of religions out there. Pick one and go with it. None of that. If Christ has not been raised, Paul would say. In other words, if it isn't true, then it isn't true. And you look really silly. And your preaching is a waste of time. A few verses later, he would say, again, if this isn't true, in so many words, if Christ has not been raised, then of all the people in the world, you are the most to be pitied. Strong. Strong language. Now, this is not a lecture about the historical Jesus. That case has been made, can be made, it should be made. The story is credible of that, those eyewitness accounts. But the point is that from the very beginning, Christian faith was built on the premise that all of this actually happened. That's not true of Buddhism ask your Buddhist friends. I can ask my Buddhist friends, even Buddhist monks. What if Buddha never lived? What if I could convince you that Siddhartha, the Buddha you know, you're most familiar with, although there are other Buddhas. What if Siddhartha, the guy in India from 500s BC, what if he never actually lived? You will find your Buddhist friends will scratch their heads and then they will say something like this. You know, it really wouldn't change the way we practice Buddhism because we don't follow Buddha per se. Buddha experienced nirvana, which means blown out. He doesn't exist anymore. To say otherwise is to dishonor him. So we don't follow Buddha, per se. We follow Buddhism, the path to enlightenment that he first rediscovered in our time. I say that sometimes in a class, and I'll see some Christian kids nodding their heads like, that's kind of how I've seen it, that if I get to the end of my life and only then discover that actually this is all a hoax, a bunch of disappointed Galileans realize Jesus was killed. It wasn't coming back, so they made up this whole resurrection thing. Wouldn't they be laughing? We're in a Christian university today having Bible lectures to talk about. They made the whole thing up. But in fact, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. We wouldn't be here. This wouldn't be happening. If Christ had not been raised, if this weren't history, this is grounded in history. Now let me say, I don't believe that all the testimony we have is only ancient testimony of eyewitnesses. Yes, you can and you should add your own testimony to theirs, of your experience of walking with Jesus. But you should also not be squeamish about staking your faith to theirs. This, the most significant piece of history ever recorded, the stories of Jesus of Nazareth. This is a story grounded in history, centered on the incarnation. I know if you're holding a Bible, it looks like it's a little to the right of center. But I think the center of the whole thing, what the old was leaning up to, was the coming of Jesus, this word who would become flesh and make his dwelling among us. And if you're familiar with any other religions out there, you might say, well, what about Hinduism? Don't Hindus speak of avatars? And if you hear the word avatar and you're thinking of video games, then you're of a certain age. Uh, But an avatar is an incarnation of a deity in, in Hinduism, yes. But the incarnation, this word that became flesh and made his dwelling among us, is unique for at least two reasons. One is it only happened once. He is the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth, if the Christian story is to be believed. And secondly, this is the word made flesh. This is the word who was with God in the beginning. In fact, the word that was God. In other words, this is a person. Those incarnations of deities in Hindu circles are, they would say, manifestations of Brahman, the only thing that really exists. Everything around you right now is Maya. It's called its illusion. If you can see it, it doesn't exist. Uh, It's funny to me that one of the most popular girl names in North America these days is Maya. Even at Harding, we have girls named Maya. And I'll tell guys, hey, if a girl comes up to you and says, you know, her name is Maya, and she needs to discuss the relationship, is it real? (laughs) I say, major red flag. (laughs) Maya means illusion. The only thing real is Brahman, this impersonal force, this energy from which deities are sometimes emerging. But they're not persons, they're manifestations of energy. Here's the second thing that distinguishes this word made flesh from those claims of appearances of deities. This is personal. This is the word made flesh. God is a being. He's not a force. He's not an energy. He's a being. Incarnation uh, it tells me that my response ought to be personal, too. It's a story grounded in history, centered on the Incarnation, And embracing the foolishness of the cross, you know, we're the only people, we're the only faith that speaks as if the the death, even the humiliating death of our founder is a key to understanding the whole religion, the whole faith. No other story is like that in any other religion in the world. I mean, how can that be? It's understandable why this was, A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. How can that make any sense? You mean to say that the the punishing, humiliating death of an obscure figure in an otherwise obscure part of the Roman Empire somehow unlocks the mysteries of the the whole universe? you got to be kidding me. We say, yes, it does, because it demonstrates the self-sacrificing love of God. It's not that he was overpowered. Jesus was quick to say, you know, you're not overpowering me, right? I am laying my life down, and I will pick it up again when I'm good and ready to. I'm not being overpowered here. This is the self-sacrificial love of God. And it's obvious from the way Jesus anticipates his own death, the way he speaks about it, that he knew in advance that he came to give his life as a ransom for others, that there was something about his death. Humiliating and shameful as it was, that was redemptive. It was redemptive. It makes my Jewish friends reel. It makes my Muslim friends quake. It's a stumbling block to both. And it makes us say, thank God for the self giving love of God. So we embrace the foolishness of the cross and also the hope of the resurrection. Because this is the only story of its kind where the founder, who dies this humiliating death three days later, comes out of the grave. It is not a dream sequence. It is not the wishful thinking of faithful followers who are so sad that, that Jesus died, that the whole thing is over, that they, they make too much out of, that, out of these dreams they had of him at night or some emotional experience, feeling Jesus in their heart, that that whole 40-day period after the resurrection, that they invented that whole thing. Oh, no. No. Don't buy that. This also is grounded in history. If the resurrection didn't happen, then I have nothing to say to you, and you have nothing to say to anybody else. If Christ has not been raised, well, you know the rest of it. We have this hope of resurrection that because he rose again, we too will live again. Death is not the end. Of course, my Jewish friends, my Muslim friends, believe that life awaits them after death that after death comes either paradise or punishment. My Hindu, Buddhist, Jain, Sikh, many other Eastern religious friends believe that they will also live again. In fact, they will live hundreds of thousands of times. Siddhartha lived 550 lives. The average Easterner doesn't know how many lives they've lived. Don't ask. How many times have you been reincarnated? Oh, only Buddha knew that. 550. You think you will achieve escape from this endless cycle of birth and rebirth in fewer lives than that? How arrogant are you? You know, we believe it's appointed for us to to live only once and then after that the judgment, or to die once and after that the judgment. But that sounds like arrogance to my Eastern friends who believe we're going to keep coming back and keep coming back. Reincarnation is not cool, but it's inevitable. We'll come back to this world of suffering until we work our way up through karma, up the spiral staircase of reincarnation, until finally we're reborn in in some position where we might get to finally escape. If they're Hindus, escape into the force that is Brahman and not have to come back again. If they're Buddhists, be blown out like a candle. The nothingness of nirvana. When your friends who are pluralist and very tolerant, and I'm not advocating for intolerance, I'm advocating for something other than tolerance, though. When your friends say, yeah, you talk about heaven and they talk about nirvana. No, nirvana means to be blown out like a candle. So cease to exist. I wouldn't say that's the same as heaven, would you? What I expect as a Christian is to be recreated in some form. I don't know the details, neither do you. Some form that's suited for immortality. Yes, I know we're made of dirt and breath. And in this present form, I'm going to have to be re-wardrobed, fit for eternity with a different kind of body. This body is going to have to be like his, transformed into another kind of body for me to live again. But when that happens, I believe I will retain something of who I am. When I stand before God, I think he will look out in a crowd like this, much bigger than this one, and he's going to say, there's Mike, Mike, glad you're here. There's Darlene. I don't know what names we'll go by. Maybe we'll have that new name written on a stone. No one knows except you. But he's not going to look out and see some blob of soul, undifferentiated soul, singular. He's going to look out and see us, isn't he? That picture I get from Revelation, that there will be a multitude there from every nation, tribe, people, and language. They'll stand before the throne and in front of the Lamb, which tells me that what we lose when we die, when we're remade, recreated in a new body, transformed body, fit for immortality, that what we lose is not our individuality, just the sinful stuff that goes along with that individualism. All that sinful stuff, sinful at least, when it's severed from our deep need for God and severed from our understanding of how deeply we need each other. Then it's individualism that just descends inevitably into selfishness and hedonism. But when it isn't, when it's redeemed, it's a good thing, and we don't lose our distinctiveness. Evidently, John, and what he sees in the speaking to heaven, can see difference. What's done away with is all that hateful us and them stuff, all that animosity that sometimes difference brings all goes away, all melts in the heat and the light that comes from the presence of the living God. What we believe as Christian people is a story that's grounded in history, centered on the incarnation, proclaiming the foolishness of the cross, the hope of the resurrection, and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. In the first half of my lifetime, we underestimated the great promise God made through Ezekiel long ago that I will put my spirit in you and I will move you to keep my decree. I'll finally empower you to do what I wanted you to do all along because my own spirit will reside in you. We don't realize how precious and unique that is in the world of world religions. Yes, my Hindu friends will tell you when you're doing yoga that this is the divine spark in you. You know, when I fold my hands and I'm, I'm honoring the divine spark in you, the divine spark that's called atman which is a little drop of that ocean of brahman which is impersonal not a being it's a force and i'm not saying don't do yoga but i'm saying when you do that you're honoring not the this divine spark that's a little drop of impersonality because the holy spirit that resides in me and in you is the powerful invisible but potent presence of a person. He, don't say it, he is the living water Jesus promised that woman at the well. He is the counselor Jesus promised his followers to come and reside with us. And as we learn how to open our sails to catch the wind that is the mighty rushing wind of God, the Holy Spirit of God, as we learn how to cooperate then we are transformed into different people. Remade in his likeness if you're looking for a way to express the unique claims of the gospel against the backdrop of all the alternatives, here is one guy's summary. It's that. It's a story grounded in history, centered on the incarnation. Yes, proclaiming the foolishness of the cross, the hope of the resurrection, and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And you and I know that a lot of people aren't buying it anymore. We call them the nuns. We got accustomed to calling them the nuns about a decade ago. These people who would start checking the box on census, uh, you know, national censuses that would say, what religion are you? Then there was a box for nuns all of a sudden, so they could check nuns. And then a guy like James Emery White would write a book called The Rise of the Nuns. Now, I mean, March 21, there was a Gallup poll that showed 47% of all Americans said they had no religious affiliation. I've seen other polls that put it at 52%. That was last year. Could that be that 52%, more than half of all Americans, say they have no religious affiliation? Some of them would identify with Jonathan Rauch. who wrote an article in The Atlantic and asked what he was religiously, and he called himself an apatheist. Here's a new word for you. An apatheist, Neither atheist or agnostic, but he said, I'm an apotheist. Made-up word. He said, you know, apathy and theism. He said, I don't think about God much at all, and I don't care. I wonder how many people of his generation are apatheists. They don't think about him, and they don't care. I wonder if Hazel would describe herself this way. If you don't like spoilers of movies that you're not going to see, then you can walk out now or put your hands in your ears, fingers in your ears, because I'm going to spoil it for you. I mean, the subtitle. The Fault in Our Stars, One Sick Love Story. These are two kids with cancer, terminal cases of cancer. They're both going to die. One of them is going to die before the movie's over. Sorry. 2014 movie, Gus, who dies before Hazel, says to Hazel, do you believe in the afterlife? And Hazel says, I don't know. To which Gus replies, well, then if you don't believe there is an afterlife, what's the point? To which Hazel replies, what if there is no point? I have students at a Christian university who are wondering, what if there is no point? They're impacted by the the skepticism of the culture around them. It's fed in part by the pluralism of, of the culture around them, which says nothing is really true. Not true in a way that I can be sure it's true. But there are others who would identify as spiritual but not religious. It's actually an old label borrowed from Alcoholics Anonymous. But 20 years ago, Robert Fuller wrote this book and said, here's some common themes among those who would say, well, we're not religious. We have no religious affiliation, but we're spiritual. Maybe you'll recognize some of these common themes shared by that cohort of folks, that there is an experiential core common to all religions, a core that's usually described as a kind of energy borrowing from the East more than anything else, the force of the Star Wars movies. Chuck Lucas said he was borrowing it from Eastern religion when he came up with the whole cosmology that is Star Wars that human beings, number two, have unlimited spiritual potential that must be actualized to achieve success in life. doesn't matter what you call it. You Christians call it one thing. Muslims call it another thing. We who are practicing a a combination of all the above call it something else, but it must be actualized, no matter what you call it, to achieve success in life. Number three, experience not truthfulness is the proper way to test any worldview. It was with my 90 Living World Religion students in St. Louis uh, a couple weeks ago, where practitioners of something called Nichiren Buddhism, which most of you have never heard of, except the few of you who took my class. Um, Nichiren Buddhists who chant Nam-myoho-renge-kyo, nam renge kyo what does that mean? It doesn't matter. They will tell you it doesn't matter. Those vibrations, if you just say those words, those vibrations are aligning you with the ultimate truth of the universe, which is basically karma. So go make good causes, go make good causes, go make good causes. It's a kind of self-talk, and they would tell you that. They're addressing this chant to know God. They're actually speaking to themselves. It's kind of self-talk to say, go make good causes, go make good causes, because you make your own karma. You don't depend on anybody else. And there, there they were trying to persuade my students, all Christian kids, most of them Christian kids, uh, to chant, not because they would tell me some story about the Buddha that they believed to be historically accurate, They don't care about the historical Buddha. But because they have chanted, and when they started chanting, the puzzle pieces of their lives started to fit together. It works. There are too many Christian people who say, you should be a Christian because it works. What about the times when it doesn't? And you get cancer, and you summon everybody you know to, to storm the throne room of God to pray on your behalf, and you still have cancer, and then you die of cancer. And it didn't work. You know, you were never praying to an it in the first place. Anyway, experience, not truthfulness, is the proper way to gauge whether any worldview is true. According to this way of thinking, spirituality has more to do with a general openness to multiple spiritualities than to a commitment to a particular creed. Those who are spiritual but not religious are highly suspicious of any organized religion, but you probably knew that already. And number six, um, that the figure of Jesus, if he's mentioned at all, Hey, we're cool with Jesus. We're not Christian, but we're cool with him. If he's mentioned at all in those circles, he's a highly evolved spiritual being who can help us in some way in our spiritual evolution. And so, to this group of people, which is growing in number, likewise, we need to be respectful and informed. We need to be respectful and informed, not dismissive and angry. We need to be respectful and informed if we ever have any hope of being persuasive, to persuade people to even give a, an, a listen to the unique claims of the gospel. And we have some help from the master himself, this word who became flesh, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. What a tremendous combination that I find way too rare. Grace and truth. Not grace without truth. Not truth without grace. Grace and truth. Not an arrogant kind of perception of truth where you think you know it all and you think you know what you know perfectly. But a humble embrace of truth because of the grace of God. That you see as you follow Jesus through the Gospel of John. You see it with that woman at the well. Grace and truth. With a woman caught in adultery. Grace and truth. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. With Nicodemus. Grace and and, I mean, you see it all through the story of Jesus. And we will only be impactful on the world around us, increasingly non Christian, to the extent that we ourselves embody grace and truth. But I want to end with two bookends. I've thought about these for a long time. You think about powerful word pictures, the bookends of Jesus' earthly life are a manger and a cross. A manger and a cross. He enters the world in a manger, exits the world, at least temporarily, on a cross. This manger, the incarnation, I mean, what do we learn about the nature of God from a manger? What do we learn about this God we love from the incarnation? I'm sure way more than I will know in my lifetime. But at the very least, we know this. God Almighty says to us, I want to be with you. I want to be with you. I don't want to be shallow with you. I don't want to be gross with you. I don't really, I'm not going to be sinful with you, but I want to be with you, and I want to be with you this much. And what do we hear coming at us from the cross? The other bookend. I mean, more messages than I will know in my lifetime. So multifaceted when I survey this wondrous cross. But at the very least, we know this. This is God Almighty saying to us, and I will lay my life down for you. I want to be with you, and I will lay my life down for you. I asked my students on the last day of class, which happened to be last Friday, I asked them this question. It's a hard question, but I asked them this question. I don't expect a response back, not verbally. I hope they respond in their lives as they graduate and move on. I ask them this question. Does your life send those two messages to the people, non-Christian people in your life that you come to know? Or does it say to them, I don't want to be with you. To have a choice, you're the last people I want to be with. And I'm prepared to fight you to have it my way. If that's the message you're sending in your Christian circle, it is not the message of Christ. And I ask of you, if your life says to your non-Christian friends who know you, Buddhist, Muslim, nuns, if your life says to them, I do want to be with you. And I'm prepared to lay my life down for you. I'm going to say, Thank God for you. That scent that comes out of you, that's called the aroma of Christ. God bless you. I said I'm going to finish by 930 and it's 929. Go buy the book. <laughs> well, you can't go buy the book. You have to buy it on Amazon. Amazon.